With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. On this week's episode, we explore a history of luxury branding. We will examine a few of the signature motifs and logos used by four of fashion's most powerful players, from the intertwined seas of Chanel to the signature red soles of Christiane Louboutin's footwear, iconography plays a significant role in shaping a brand's identity. Yeah, and whether someone is a consumer of high-end fashion or not, these signifiers are instantly recognizable to billions of people worldwide. They transcend language barriers. The most famous of them stand the test of time. And for many people, products featuring luxury brand monograms and logos are the ultimate status symbol. And, well... These may be some of the most recognizable symbols on our planet. Few, aside from fashion industry insiders, are actually familiar with their origin stories. Sometimes these stories are romantic, sometimes they're myths, and sometimes they go to the very core of the brand in a way that just melts your heart. April, you know I am always up for a romantic tale, and I truly want to believe the hypothesis that the mirrored seas of Chanel, for instance, stand for Chanel and Capel. Captain Arthur Edward Capel, known as Boy, was Chanel's lover, whom is largely regarded as the love of her life, and he financed her first business ventures into fashion in the 1910s. Now, sadly, Capel was tragically killed in a car accident in 1919, and one theory is that the interlocking seas stand for Chanel and Capel, an homage to their unbreakable bond. However, this is just one of several conflicting stories surrounding the creation of one of fashion's most famous logos— And it's a little bit of a delicious mystery, I must say. And we're going to get into that later in the episode. But before we do, let's take a trip back in history even further. To the early 19th century, 1835 to be specific, when a 13-year-old boy set out on his own to ultimately seek his fortunes in Paris, leaving behind the comforts of a country home in the French region of Jura. That young boy, his name remains synonymous with luxury today. His name was Louis Vuitton. April, I think we can all agree that 13 is a really young age to be all on one's own. Yeah, it is. And we're not exactly sure why he left home so early. Some evidence suggests that maybe he didn't get along particularly well with his stepmother. His own mother had died when he was 10, and his father eventually remarried. But we also need to remember that it wasn't particularly uncommon at this time in the 19th century for families to send away one of their sons to an urban center so that they could establish themselves in a profession. And we do know that Louis's brother Claude later joined him in Paris. In 1837, Louis accepted an apprenticeship to a box maker. And that may seem a bit of a strange profession to us now, uh, but at the time when goods were transported by horse-drawn carriages and travel was by way of boat or train— the creation and packing of boxes and crates of all sorts was an absolute necessity. Right. One would call on the services of a box maker to create custom boxes to protect precious items that were destined to travel. Exceptionally fine things like jewelry, of course, but also everyday things like furniture, clothing, maybe even your favorite tea set, which was going to accompany you on a voyage that lasted months, as opposed to days or weeks that trips might last today. These box makers, or laitiers, as they were known in French, they would even come to your house 
and they'd measure all your possessions for you, and they'd talk with you one-on-one about your specific needs. For 17 years, Louis practiced this trade under the eye of his mentor, learning how to provide his customers with artful packing solutions and sturdy encasements that were light and practical. But also during this time, he was carefully saving money with the goal of establishing his own business, which he did in 1854. This was also the year he married, so 1854 was kind of a big year for him. Naming his company Louis Vuitton, he set up shop in Paris near the Place Vendôme, an extremely chic area that was home to much of the Parisian fashion industry at the time. And from the very start of his company, he cultivates this connection to fashion. Early Louis Vuitton signage especially states that the company's specialization is in packing fashions. Packing fashions for travel was no joke in the mid-19th century. This was not a period of the small carry-on, let's just say. A well-dressed woman could take as many as 30 trunks with her on a trip abroad. Packing these trunks was an incredibly involved process, especially when you account for the fact that women's wide, bell-shaped dresses from the 1850s were supported by layers and layers of petticoats. The cage krillin, or hoop skirt, would replace these petticoats around 1856, but transporting all these massive underpinnings in addition to all the accessories and changes in garments themselves, this was a tall order, especially because a lot of these dresses were quite fragile. So you can understand why if you could afford to pay someone to do it, this is something that you might turn over to a professional. And Louis very quickly developed a high-end clientele that included royalty. Louis's packing experience inspired him to make some pretty major innovations that ultimately lead to what has been called the birth of the modern luggage industry. In addition to custom boxes and packing services, Louis Vuitton begins making and selling trunks of exceptional quality. So traditionally, trunks were covered in leather and had domed lids so the rain would run off when stored or transported out of doors. Through his packing experience, Louis knew that leather frequently gave off an overpowering odor, which would scent fine textiles. So he invented a waterproof canvas that eliminated the need for the curved lid, and this allowed him to create flat-top trunks that could not only now be stacked on top of one another, but stored inside your travel vessel underneath your seat or your bed. A fashion designer friend gave advice that led to even further innovation when Vuitton began creating vertically-oriented wardrobe trunks with hanging spaces and drawers. Okay, I just want to say something here. Leather-scented ball gown? No, thank you. Not for me. I think I'm going to have to second you on that one. (laughs) And perhaps many of his clients agreed because the new Louis Vuitton flat trunks were enthusiastically embraced by consumers during the 1860s and 70s. So he began to win a series of design awards, and it was not long after that that uh, imitations of Vuitton's designs began to appear on the market. So in an effort to combat counterfeits, the company reinvented the look of the canvas used on its trucks several times over the next two decades. What began as a pale gray trianone canvas gave way to red stripes on a beige ground before the company finally settled on the brown and beige color palette we most associate with Louis Vuitton today. And also at this time, the company begins to really actively establish itself as a brand par excellence, with unrivaled quality, craftsmanship, customization, and this was really welcomed by high-profile clients, um, including the French impress Eugenie and the actress Sarah Bernhardt, who I found this particularly interesting, April. She took 200 pieces of Louis Vuitton luggage on a tour of Brazil. I wonder how many of those got lost. Um, That seems excessive. But she was an actress, so maybe for her it was entirely necessary. I I would agree with that. (laughs) Um, So as 
precious as the contents of the trunks may be, the Louis Vuitton trunk became a coveted luxury good in and of itself. Increasing visibility only spurred the market for these imitations that were popping up. And looking back through old issues of Harper's Bazaar, you can find ads for Louis Vuitton products that date back to the 1880s and also the 1890s. And they say in these really bold block letters, it says, beware of spurious imitations. Yeah, this is what we do. We sit around, we page through 125-year-old fashion magazines for you guys. (laughs) It's a really tough job, April, but somebody has to do it. Um, in 1888, Louis' son Georges encouraged his father to once again reinvent the signature canvas, but this time as a more complex pattern so that it would be difficult to counterfeit. Now, the checkerboard pattern was born. Known as Damier, French for checkerboard, this Vuitton canvas design was the first of the companies to be patented, and the trademark appears intermittently interspersed within the squares. In 1892, Louis Vuitton passed away at the age of 71, but he left the business in the very capable hands of his son, Georges. It was Georges who created the now-famous monogram canvas in 1896 in yet another effort to combat the counterfeit trade, which at this point had latched on to the Damier checkerboard pattern despite its trademark status. And it's worth noting, April, that in 2015, a court actually ruled that Louis Vuitton could no longer trademark the Damier pattern, The pattern that was created to prevent copying has become so copied and so ubiquitous as to have been deemed commonplace by the court of law. Wow. George was concerned about this, the simplicity of the Damier pattern, and it inspired him to make a subsequent monogram canvas, which was decidedly more complex. It was comprised of not one, but four different elements. First was the interlacing letters L and V, And these were joined by three different abstract flower shapes. And all of these are arranged in a grid pattern. And the overall effect of this canvas has been called simple, clever, and strict. The motif has been compared to the heraldic devices or coats of arms that were employed by nobility as an emblem of family affiliation all the way back to the Middle Ages. And it has also been suggested that the circular quatrefoil was influenced by the Japanese mon, an emblem found on Japanese clothing that helps to identify a family. George's decision to include his father's initials in the company's new design motif was not only a tender gesture of respect to his recently departed father. The monogram canvas also pioneered the use of a highly prominent logo in delineating brand identity. The inclusion of his father's initials, this also follows the tradition of artists signing their own works. Since its inception, the monogram canvas has become a pillar stone of the Louis Vuitton identity. Today, it continues to be used for a staggering variety of Louis Vuitton products, most famously their handbags, but also their pet carriers, golf bags, and even niche items like, as my husband just recently pointed out to me, ping pong paddles and jump rope. (laughs) But of course, it continues to be used for their signature trunks, um, which are still made by hand by skilled craftsmen using these age-old techniques and tools And in a somewhat surprising testament to the legacy of Louis Vuitton, the brand's extra special orders and commissions are overseen by none other than Vuitton's great-great-grandson, Patrick Louis Vuitton. I love that. So at the end of the day, the very existence of the monogram canvas is really a testament to the brand's early success. Mm -hmm. The very creation of it was prompted by the company's ongoing battle to combat knockoffs. And this is something that's omnipresent throughout Louis Vuitton's history. 
So coveted have been their products that there is a 150-year history of Louis Vuitton fakes. (laughs) Yeah, so if you think that the imitations of it bags today are anything new, next time you see a Louis Vuitton bag, remember this game is as old as time. And while Vuitton might have been one of the first to pioneer the use of the designer logo, he was certainly not the last. And next we will investigate the history of the logo of another one of fashion's oldest brands still in existence— And as it turns out, it is a story about the bonds of love between a mother and a daughter. The age of 13 seems to be a common thread in this episode because our next subject, much like Louis Vuitton, also began her professional education around this age. Born in Paris in 1867, Jeanne Lanvin followed the trajectory of many young working-class girls during the 19th century. The path of employment and opportunity led directly to the Paris fashion trades. Considered a suitable line of work for women, the industry disproportionately employed more women than many other professions at this time. And much of Jeanne's training took place under the tutelage of female seamstresses and milliners— After a five-year period of training in Paris, 18-year-old Jeanne spread her wings and moved to Barcelona, where she was employed by a well-known Spanish dressmaker, Maria Berta Valenti. The two actually became quite close and considered themselves family for the years to come. Valenti really nurtured Jeanne's talents and imparted her dressmaking expertise to her young protege. And Jeanne returned to France, skilled at couture construction techniques, and opened a small millinery shop in her Paris apartment. An afternoon attending the horse races would prove to be a great turning point in Jeanne's life. There she met her future husband, Henri-Emile Georges de Pietro, whom she married in 1896. A year and a half later, their daughter, Marguerite-Marie Blanche, was born. And while the marriage of de Pietro did not endure, the couple ended up divorcing something like six years later. The love that did endure would really become the foundation for the fashion empire that Jeanne a female designer and now single mother, was about to build. And Jeanne threw herself into building her millinery business as a means to give her daughter a bright future. Marguerite was the light of her life, and one way she expressed her love was through the exquisite wardrobe she created for her daughter. Lanvin's millinery clients took note of her beautiful children's wear and began to commission not only hats for themselves, but also clothing for their children. In 1909, Jeanne Lanvin was officially welcomed to the ranks of haute couture, joining the Chambre Syndicale de la Couture with lines for both women and girls. And while the Lanvin brand today is no longer officially recognized as a couture house, it does luxury ready-to-wear now, um, it was for many years the oldest couture house continuously in existence. From 1909 to 1993, so 84 years, the Lanvin brand remained one of the most revered of the practicing couture houses. It can be argued that the period of the 1920s to 1930s was the heyday of Lanvin. The young British princesses Elizabeth and Margaret wore Lanvin's children's wear. Even the princesses' dolls were dressed in Lanvin. In a really lovely gesture, the couture house created doll-sized versions of the princesses' special order dresses. Many of Jeanne's creations for women from this period still retain the ability to take your breath away 100 years later because they feel so current. She had this very special purity of voice and vision in the clothes that she was creating. I distinctly remember a few years ago when I was at a fashion exhibition at a museum, and I saw this 1920s dress all the way across the room. And in my gut, I instinctually knew immediately that it was Lanvin. And it was. 
The embroidery on the beading of the dress were loosely inspired by Chinese motifs, and this was something that she was able to do quite well. To seek out inspiration from other cultures and draw on these kind of vast wellsprings of beauty. And she did this in a way that avoided the pitfalls of cultural appropriation. She integrated these inspirations in a way that was entirely fresh and uniquely her own. And while she did occasionally look abroad for inspiration, most frequently her inspiration was found right at home in the form of her daughter, Marguerite Marie Blanche. Okay, I have a request. Can we just call her Marie Blanche for the rest of the episode? (laughs) I feel like her full name is a little bit of a mouthful, and Marie Blanche herself ended up dropping the Marguerite part of her name once she became an adult. Yeah, I agree. That makes things a lot easier for everyone. Um, But in terms of our topic today, April, I don't think we can entirely dismiss the Marguerite part of her name because it does have a very specific tie to our topic today, the Lanvin logo. In French, Marguerite means daisy, and this flower frequently makes an appearance in the Lanvin oeuvre as a pattern or embellishment. This was not an accident. Marie Blanche played an integral role in the development of the Lanvin brand. She was without doubt her mother's muse from the moment she was born. And as Marie Blanche grew up, so followed the evolution of the Lanvin style. From toddler muse to aristocrat and model, during the 1930s, Marie Blanche can be spotted modeling her mother's designs in the pages of Vogue, even after she married and became the Countess of Polignac. Despite helming such a high-profile company, Jeanne herself really shied away from the limelight. She preferred a quiet but quite creative life with her daughter, who has been called her work in progress at the center. Jeanne often named her creations, and over the years, many ensembles were given the name Marie Blanche. So much was she always in her mother's heart. So it makes perfect sense, then, that the logo of the House of Lanvin would be a very tender testament to this exceptional bond. In 1923, avant-garde illustrator Paul Arib created a logo for the house, which features a mother and young daughter gazing adoringly at each other as they face each other holding hands. The composition of the logo is actually based on a real-life photo of Jeanne and Marie Blanche. She was probably around 10 years old at the time, so this was probably sometime around 1907. The two were photographed dressed for a costume ball in coordinating shiny floor-length dresses, and they had on these really tall, conical hats. Marie Blanche is smiling brightly up at her mother as Jen clasps both of her hands. I just love that image. And Arib did something quite interesting with this photographic inspiration. Instead of attempting to illustrate a lifelike facsimile of the photo, he analyzed the major shapes and contours and broke it down into bold black blocks of solid color. The overall effect is similar to a woodblock print. And Arib himself was an important innovator in the realm of fashion illustration. His work with the Couturier Pauperet in 1908 is often cited as the origin of modern fashion illustration. And from this point onwards, he became an esteemed collaborator of a myriad of fashion designers. And I should probably just mention here really quickly that there is indeed some conflicting information out there as to who designed the Lanvin logo. Every once in a while, there's a source that pops up that says A.A. Rateau is the designer of the logo. Um, And this gentleman, Rateau, his, his full name was Armand Albert Rateau. He was also a frequent collaborator with Lanfan, but he worked mainly as her architect and her interior designer for her boutiques and also her own private residences that she had. And it's most likely that this confusion as to who designed the logo stems from the fact that in 1927, Rateau tweaked Reeb's original design for use on Lanvin perfume bottles. Most notably, for anyone who is a perfume aficionado out there, 
her perfume Arpege, which is still in production today. Speaking of designer perfume, it feels like it's time to talk about Chanel. Absolutely. So, Cass, you've already offered up one of the origin stories about the mirrored interlocking C's of the Chanel logo, that the two C's were meant to be a symbolic testament to the love affair between Chanel and Boy Capel, who died a tragic death. There are others, though. Quite a few, actually. One of the most straightforward is that the two C's stand for Coco and Chanel. I'm sure many of our listeners already know this, but Coco was a nickname that predates her career as a designer, perhaps from the period in her youth when she worked as a cabaret singer. Her given name, though, was Gabrielle, and early Chanel labels feature her full name, Gabrielle Chanel. Another theory surrounding the Chanel logo has to do with architecture she encountered as a young girl. Yeah. Chanel's childhood was actually quite unpleasant. Her father initially refused to marry her mother, despite the fact that they had multiple children together out of wedlock. And this was a very, very big deal in the 1880s. So much so that Chanel's mother's family eventually paid her father to marry her mother so the family could regain at least the smallest amount of respectability. Sadly, Chanel's mother died prematurely, and at the age of 11, Chanel was placed in the care of nuns at the Catholic Orphanage at Abazine. One theory is that the impressionable Chanel would later take inspiration for her C's from the stained glass windows at the Abazine Abbey, where she spent her teen years. Some of the windows there feature these Romanesque motifs that resemble interlacing knots, portions of which are similar to the Chanel monogram. Uh, Likewise, a similar legend swirls around the stained glass windows of the Chateau Cremat in Nice, which features mirrored interlocking C's, standing for Chateau and Cremat, that are nearly dead ringers for the Chanel logo. Personally, I take a little bit of exception with this particular tale for reasons of timing. Um, As folklore would have us believe, Chanel would have seen the Chateau Cremant when she became friends with a wealthy American heiress who purchased it in 1923. However, the Chanel logo as we know it first appeared in 1921 when it was engraved on the stopper of an early bottle design for the perfume Chanel No. 5. So I think I'd, I don't know, Cass, I think I'd need a little more evidence before I'd consider this Chateau Cremant story to be a contender. (laughs) Fair enough, because there are plenty more origin myths to consider April, and I'm going to tell you about a few more. One is related to her family. One of Chanel's biographers, Edmond Charles Roux, wrote that Gabrielle's great-grandfather, Joseph Chanel, crafted his own furniture and marked his designs with two large C's that formed a circle around a symbol for Christ. And yet another has to do with some of the street lamps that are in central London. It has been proposed that the interlocking C's, which appear on their base, are grand sweeping gestures of love from the second Duke of Westminster, who was a paramour of Chanel's for many years. In reality, though, the C's quite understandably actually stand for city council. And this could go on and on. All the different hypotheses surrounding the Chanel logo. So in an effort to get to the bottom of things, I called in a favor. I contacted our friends at the Patrimony Division of Chanel in Paris. They are the archivists charged with preserving brand heritage. So who else better to ask, right? Do you want to know what they said? I'm dying to know, actually. They said yes. Yes. To which story? All of it. (laughs) They said that um, because Chanel never explicitly spoke about the logo's origins, that it may always remain somewhat of an enigma. Much like Chanel herself, I must say. They did bring up and lend a little bit of credence to yet another theory. 
How many does that take us to? I think that's six now, yeah, right? <laughs> something like that. Um, this other theory has to do with the 16th century queen of France, Catherine de' Medici. According to Mesia Cert, who was one of Chanel's very closest friends, when Chanel was first launching her line of cosmetics and fragrances, she purchased at least one formula from the archives of René de Florentin, who had been a Renaissance perfumier who worked for Catherine de' Medici. Being that Queen Catherine's use of a double-mirrored C monogram is very, very well established in the art historical record, could it be possible that Chanel stumbled across it in the centuries-old archive of this perfume maker? We do know for sure that Chanel was familiar with Catherine de' Medici because she actually wrote about her in a 1936 article that was about the intersection of fashion and history. Whatever the reason for its inception, the logo and the brand it represents have become world-recognized emblems of luxury and sophistication. While in the earliest years, the double C monogram only appeared on Chanel's beauty products, beginning in 1955, the monogram started to be used on accessories with the launch of the iconic black quilted 2.55 bag. And today it appears on an array of Chanel products, from cosmetics and clothing to surfboards and sleeping masks. And with that, we head to our next and final subject, But first, a word from our sponsors. April, you were not joking about the age 13 becoming a common (laughs) thread throughout this episode. I wasn't. I wasn't at all. There must be something about professional determination from that young age that leads to success. Um, The next designer we're going to talk about began designing shoes at the age of 13. At 16, he was sufficiently confident in his sketches to approach the Folie Bergère, the famed cabaret in his hometown of Paris. He wanted them to buy his designs. But this didn't pan out, mainly because the cost of producing custom shoes for the showgirls was far too great. He was, however, undeterred, and I guess I would say rather audacious, because what he did next is he simply hauled out the phone book and began cold-calling couture houses, offering his services as a shoe designer. When he finally called Christian Dior, he managed to arrange an appointment to show his sketches to the fashion director at Dior at the time. She was so impressed with the young Christian Louboutin that she arranged for an unprecedented internship for him at Charles Jordan, the established elite footwear brand that had been partnering with Dior since the late 1950s. At Charles Jordan, Louboutin learned the fundamentals of fabricating shoes and acquired skills that he would put to use for the better portions of the 1980s when he worked as a freelance shoe designer for luxury brands including Chanel and Yves Saint Laurent. This was followed by a brief professional detour working as a landscape designer before he launched his own brand, opening a boutique in Paris in 1992. It was one of his initial collections, fall-winter 1992-1993, that introduced the concept that would come to be his signature, the Red Soul. Oh, the signature Red Souls. We all know them. And this takes us to yet another connection to historical emblems of royalty. Louboutin did not invent the Red Soul shoe. There is actually an aristocratic precedent dating back hundreds of years to 1673 when King Louis XIV introduced red heels for the men of the French court. Only his courtiers of sufficient rank were allowed to wear the red-heeled shoes, and Louis XIV himself is depicted wearing them in more than one official portrait. Subsequent kings of France would quite literally follow in his footsteps, adopting the red heels in their royal portraits as well. However, the association of red shoes with power and hierarchy actually predates Louis XIV, as red shoes were worn by Christian emperors of Byzantium and popes of the Roman Catholic Church. 
But it was Louis XIV who made them an official symbol of power and prestige, and it was not long before the royalty of other European courts followed suit. They were worn in Britain, Austria, Bavaria, and Saxony, and today the vestiges of this practice remain intact in Britain. For certain state occasions, Queen Elizabeth's pages continue to wear red-heeled soles. However, when you ask Louboutin about the origin of his own red soles, he does not make this connection to their centuries-old ancestors. Louboutin is all about aesthetics. He tells of when he received a prototype for a shoe for his 1992 Pansy collection. The shoe in question was pink crepe, and it had a black sole. But Louboutin was struck by the feeling that something wasn't quite right, it wasn't capturing the spirit of his original sketch, and he happened to notice a bottle of red nail polish on his assistant's desk. He picked it up, painted that black sole red, and the shoe was transformed. The Louboutin signature look was born. And he also acknowledges the fact that there is something extremely sensuous about this unexpected flash of color as a woman walks away or maybe as she sits and reveals the bottom of her shoe. And Louboutin has not been the only fashion house to harness the power of the red sole. In what has now become one of the most famous cases on intellectual property in the fashion industries, Louboutin brought a lawsuit against Yves Saint Laurent over a high-heeled pump that was part of their Cruise 2011 collection. Louboutin had trademarked the use of a red sole in 2008, and the company argued that YSL's monochrome red shoe with a red sole violated this trademark. At the root of this case was this question. What makes a product recognizable in relationship to a specific brand? And can you trademark a color? Ultimately, the judge ruled that YSL was entitled to continue to sell its monochrome red shoes, while Louboutin's trademark applied to a red-soled shoe with contrasting uppers. But this was not the end of this business. Subsequent lawsuits filed by Louboutin against Charles Jordan, while he had received his early education as an intern, Louboutin also filed a lawsuit against the fashion brand Zara. None of these brands were attempting to sell Louboutin counterfeits. The red-soled shoes they were producing were branded under their respective names, but it was the borrowing of Louboutin's legally protected aesthetic that was the source of contention. Louboutin's red soles serve very much the same capacity as the Chanel monogram, brand recognition. The term logo simply means, quote, a symbol or other design adopted by an organization to identify its products. So while most commonly we think of a logo as text or an emblem, in this context, the trademark was recognizing the positioned use of color on a shoe. Since then, Louboutin has strengthened their trademark by reapplying with a higher degree of specificity, including the Pantone number of their signature shade. This was not our intent um, to begin and end this episode with a discussion of luxury brand lawsuits. <laughs> but I guess maybe to me that underscores the fact that we should do a future episode about intellectual property in the fashion industry. Absolutely. This whole culture of, of counterfeit and copying has been going on forever. We want to extend a special thank you to Julie, Marie, and Odile and everyone else over at the Patrimony Division of Chanel for assisting with our query about the origin of the Chanel logo. Until next week, we wish you all joy in getting dressed. Please follow us on Instagram for visuals that augment each week's episode at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. That's at dressed underscore podcast. If you'd like to email us, you can reach us at dressed at howstuffworks.com. 